Hey, everybody, let's start with a little music. I wrote this in GarageBand. Hope everyone had a good week. It is great to see you all again. <laughs> Looks like Doug Vincent and Splunky Doink. How you guys doing? Hope you had a good week. Happy Easter. Woohoo! There's probably only going to be two of you tonight. Anyway. That's enough of my music. A little bit of blues I wrote in my garage band. I just woke up from a nap, so I got to wake up. I've got a good show tonight. I found lots of good crap. <laughs> Oh, Teresa Pittman. Good to have you. All right. Anyway, that's enough of that noise. Actually, it's good music. Okay. I forgot until yesterday that today was Easter, believe it or not. So I hope you've all had a great Easter. I have. I've had a good Easter. It's been a blessed Easter. I I like holidays because you can kind of sit and relax. And uh, I relaxed in books all day preparing for tonight. And I got all my visuals corrected and connected. <laughs> now if I can connect my visuals from there to here. Let me see if I can do this correctly. Oh, yeah, that's going to work beautiful. All right, good. I've got one of my visuals ready. I gave you a sneak peek. Don't tell me I never did anything for you. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. Man of many talents, huh? Well, I'll, I'll tr I'd try to juggle, except I'd drop the plates and shatter them, and then my wife would be kicking my derriere. So no plate juggling. <laughs> uh, we're going to have fun tonight. It is going to be a good night. Hey, nine of you here. Let's get started. Why not? First, I would like to make a couple of announcements, and I am very, very excited. Oh, maybe, of course, and I can say this at the end again, too. Remind me, don't forget to let me know to say it again at the end, when instead of two of you, there's three of you here. <laughs> ah, okay, my announcement is... In a week from this Tuesday, that's going to be on April 26th, if my calculations are correct. I think that's going to be the last Tuesday in April. Uh, Radio Free Mormon is going to be doing his second session on Mormon stories with John DeLynn. You won't want to miss that. Uh, I'm not sure... <laughs> I forgot to ask him what time. I suspect he'll be here tonight, and we can ask him, Hey, Tom Miller, from behind enemy lines in California. Yeah, baby. 
you are the man. So anyway, um, Radio Free Mormon will be doing his second session. And then I'm going to be doing a Mormon Stories podcast with John Glenn and Gerardo live on May 2nd at 6 p.m. And that's going to be on a Monday. It's going to be 6 p.m. Mountain Time. So uh, Gerardo and John DeLynn have finally cornered me and said, you, get on our show. And I said, okay, don't be so violent about it. So I'm really excited to be on the show. I'm going to, I'll probably say that a couple of times during this session that I'm going to be on Mormon Stories. So I am excited. We're going to have a good time on it. Yeah, baby. Any preview on the content? Yes, I'm going to be talking uh, some more on the uh, Joseph Smith papyri, more my story of why I can't be an apologist, uh, many of the errors in the interpretations of Joseph Smith, etc. So, yeah, happy pagan Easter, Tom Miller. Absolutely. Hey, Dan Bogle. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, I'm excited. So, uh, looks like we're all rounding up. So let me get started on this. I don't want to take too much time. Four minutes in, and I love all of you, but I got to take a swig of my crystal clear mountain cooled refrigerated water. That's good stuff. Okay, what a mew whistle. Man, I can't whistle. We're spent. So there you go. Patty Cake, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, we're looking forward to fun with all you people. You look like you're going to have some fun tonight. A lot of good people here. 18 of us already. Eight likes. Thank you. That's very kind. Okay, Dan Vogel in the house. Uh, Tom Miller in the house. Splunky Doink in the house. Doug Vincent in the house, Patty Cake, and Teresa Pittman. All of you wonderful people are in the house. So let us proceed. Dan Vogel. I have been more or less uh, reviewing Dan Vogel's book uh, through Stephen Smoot's review of his book. And I've discovered and I've essentially shown you, I, I believe, the difference between what apologetics is and what actual scholarship is. And Stephen Smoot has what it takes to produce good scholarship when he decides to, is my, is my take on, and, and I say that from reading quite a few of his entrees on the internet, uh, with various different types of articles and or slash types of book reviews. His book review of Dan's book is not so premium, in my opinion, because my suspicion based on how Smoot basically skipped 90% of the first chapter in the entire second and third chapters of Vogel's book Told, told me that he probably didn't read the whole book. If he did, he can correct me. It's good, but he really didn't review it very well. He went straight to the part where Dan was talking about the apologetic attempts to bolster the ancient authenticity, but he skipped over the core, the cream of the crop in Dan Vogel's book, the evidence of dictation from Joseph Smith 
to his scribes and them simultaneously writing down that dictation, I thought was extremely well done, very eye-opening. His materials on the Khatoum in Princess in the Valuable Discovery Notebook was another eye-popping eye-opener where he presented the uh, the priesthood lines from the Egyptians in attempting to situate in the historic context the actual mummies that Joseph Smith purchased along with the papyri, the two rolls, which he identified as the Book of Abraham and the Book of Joseph, and then the pure Adamic language, which was sensational, and that made it into Joseph Smith's Egyptian grammar and partly into the story of the passing down of the records as well as the priesthood through the line of the fathers, which realistically Joseph Smith or maybe Oliver Cowdery and then Oliver Cowdery uh, put Joseph onto it where that same topic was discussed in Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian in Jesus's day, but it's nowhere mentioned in the book of Genesis. So Smoot skipped all that phantasmagoric materials of the historical use of the materials that Joseph Smith was involved in because the apologists seek to pull Joseph Smith as far away as they can from the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And I'm going to call them the Kirtland Egyptian papers. That's how I was born and raised on them. That's what I'm going to call them. All of the materials Joseph Smith worked with his scribes. Oh, sure. Of course, Dan. Anytime, my friend. Any Paul Osborne, thank you for showing up. Yes, good. Yeah, it's a good book to read, Paul. I'm just saying. Oh, and hey, I do have another announcement. Uh, I will I will tie in some materials tonight uh, on Easter. Happy Easter, everyone, uh, with tonight's discussion based on my afternoon research this afternoon that I just found some stuff. So I'm going to kind of uh, change up this material a little bit. But next week, I will be discussing in detail Tale, uh, information from our very own Paul Osborne, who is in the audience tonight. Stand up and take a bow. Whistles and chairs. Paul Osborne. Bravissimo! Bravissimo! <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calm down, folks. Calm down. You got to let him breathe. Uh, he has discovered an apologetic attempt to bolster the authenticity of uh, I do believe figure six in facsimile number three, but uh, I will be discussing Paul Osborne's analysis of an apologetic attempt to defend facsimile number three, and uh, that's going to be next week, so you don't want to miss that. It's going to be very, very exciting and interesting. So uh, what we have tonight, oh, Tim Rathbone. Good to see you here. Welcome. Yes, the bunny brought us some eggs too. Absolutely. Happy Easter to everybody. So the, uh, the idea tonight is astronomy in facsimile number two. That's the round one, the hypocephalus right there. Number two in the book of Abraham. 
I have often wondered where Joseph Smith got his astronomical information. Tonight, you're in for a treat. Hopefully, I can get to all of this. I'm going to have to hurry fast because I found a boatload of new materials that I did not have just five hours ago, and I want to incorporate it. So this is chapter five of Dan Bogle's book where he discusses the cosmological understanding that Joseph Smith imputes to Abraham and the Old Testament patriarchs. So it was in uh, the second installment of translating the book of Abraham in 1842 in the Times and Seasons, where he discusses the circular hypocephalus. The translation contained a cosmology of planets and stars ascribed to the Old Testament patriarchs. But, and, and does this surprise us at this point in the game? It probably shouldn't. But, uh, the hey, Gerardo, good to meet you. I just made my announcement that I'm coming on with you and John DeLynn on May 2nd. So back me up here, would you? <laughs> yes, I'm going to be on Mormon Stories, May 2nd, 6 p.m. Monday. Yeah, baby. Welcome. So, uh, it doesn't surprise us that the cosmology that Joseph Smith said Abraham understood is not the ancient cosmology. There's no flat earth. There's no starry dome in the sky of the firmament, etc. So it was both a mixture. Uh, it was both unique and consistent with what was understood by astronomers and natural historians in the mid-19th century. And Vogel explains that very well in this chapter. I don't know how much detail I'll get into that because Vogel showed something in this chapter that just blew my mind. I had no idea. And I have put together a visual of it. Dan, you're going to love this visual. At least I hope so. Uh, that hopefully seeks more clarity. Dan was very clear here, but to see it in picture form is really something else. When it dawned on me what you were saying in this chapter, Mr. Vogel, that's right, I'm watching you, pal, <laughs> while I'm reading your book, I was really impressed. I, wow, I did not realize that. We have some new clarifying connections that are real nice here. Now, with the invention of the telescope, of course, astronomers uh, wondered if all of those planets out there that they were looking at were inhabited as well as ours. And they utilized some of the biblical verses, Isaiah 45, 18. God created the earth not in vain in, to be formed and inhabited. And the Reverend Amos Pettingill, which Dan Vogel brings up, 1780 to 1830, he reasoned that God, of course, in his infinite wisdom, created and caused the earth to be inhabited, not only us, but the cosmos as well. He was acting consistently in creating them, not in vain, but to be inhabited. And in his book, A View of the Heavens, or Familiar Lessons on Astronomy, published in 1826 in New Haven, Connecticut, so this is right in Joseph Smith's backyard, adopted to the use of schools, Pettengill concluded that the planets are evidently calculated and designed to accommodate rational beings. Well, maybe most of, a, most of this world's 
group of people had better go over there then because we're beginning to get irrational around here on this planet. I'll tell you what, whew, we got to be careful. We're getting ourselves into trouble, aren't we? Many circumstances constrain us to believe that they are filled with inhabitants and that every fixed star illuminates worlds peopled with creatures like ourselves, but not involved with us in rebellion against the creator. That's Pettengill. And then it is against this backdrop of the inhabited cosmos that Joseph Smith developed his cosmology. Now, this is chapter five. I'm on page 120 now. Uh, not to take anything away from Vogel, but his example using Pettengill is excellent, and it is correct. But there's a lot more to this than what Vogel let on. Now, I understand today that uh, it's probably criminal to try to publish everything you know into one book so that it's four inches thick so that you can give the full context. We've been brainwashed by our dumbing down society and government at this point and in our school systems that is going clearly pure to pot that we're not allowed to think for more than 10 minutes and we really shouldn't have to buy big books and spend time studying and learning, which is bunk. However, I'm not criticizing Dan Vogel. I'm saying he's giving us the correct nuance here, but there's another book here by Michael J. Crow, The Extraterrestrial Life Debates from 1750 to 1900. That is absolutely fantastic in showing that on both sides of the Atlantic now, in the United States, in the eight, well, it started in the 1700s, and it went all the way up into the 1900s, as far as that goes, but also on the other side of the Atlantic, in Scotland, in the UK, in France, in Germany, all over Europe, this subject called plurality, they call it plurality, the plurality of worlds, with living beings was fundamentally the topic that society wanted to discover and know more about, especially, as Vogel properly pointed out, with the invention of the telescope and Herschel and many of those people who were using the telescopes coming up with new astronomical information, uh, even the mathematicians, uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss, several of the philosophers, the poets, everybody was getting in on this subject. It was the big subject. And then guess who came along and really put a wrench in the works? Thomas Paine, Age of Reason. And he said, the plurality of worlds destroys Christianity. And, of course, the Christians took umbrage with this. They were highly, seriously offended, and they said nothing doing. Okay, Radio Free Mormon, welcome. I will give you some top-notch good stuff. This is the right place. I have already bragged upon you. Uh, and I will continue to do so for the next 250 years, just like I do on all of you in the audience, because every one of you are spectacular. In this text, let me show you the fullest measure of this topic. Pain 
caused a gigantic argument on both sides of the Atlantic with this plurality of worlds refuting Christianity. They began to gather together all their information and their analysis and their logic using the most current up-to-date astronomy and the knowledge there. And in America, from 1800 to 1840, the intensity of this debate on Jesus being the God of all the worlds, did his atonement affect only this world or was it universal? All of the major cosmological themes that Joseph Smith had in the Book of Mormon and in the Book of Abraham and in his revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants whenever he broached this subject, the entire East Coast of America, especially in New York, became known as the Burned Over District because of this subject. That's what I want to emphasize just briefly to enhance, to solidify that Dan Vogel isn't just pulling some historical, made-up, invented nuance out of thin air in order to demonstrate that the astronomy and cosmology in Joseph Smith's facsimile number two does not match Abraham's, but it does match the fervor of the astronomical speculations of the 19th century, Dan Vogel's got that spot on. He only mentioned it enough to give a context for his further discussion of the details out of the Egyptian grammar. I want to emphasize it and add to this. Vogel is completely correct on this. But listen to the language here. See if you can recognize some things that Joseph Smith included in the uh, the Book of Mormon, say, or in the King Follett Discourse, or in the Doctrine and Covenants, or in the Facsimile Number 2. It might surprise the heck out of you how Joseph Smith absorbs so much of his cosmological information from definitely what was on the minds of all of the ministers across the religious board, all of the scientists across the board, all of the philosophers and the poets and the everyday Joe, Jane, Dick, and Harry's, this was the topic. Now, I'm probably exaggerating slightly. Not much. Let me show you. I'm going to try to read quickly. Robert Harrington, M.D., in 1796. This is the uh, extraterrestrial life debate by Michael Crow. I'm on page 168. He published his new system of fire and planetary life, showing that the sun and planets are that the sun and planets are inhabited, and that they enjoy the same temperament as our Earth. The sun and planets all enjoy the identical same fire or light or heat, the same temperature, and I make no doubt. 
the same men, animals, vegetables, and minerals, the same atmosphere in water. In short, everything the same. And he adds, what a vast idea. Interesting. This is 1796. On the plurality of worlds, James Mitchell, 1786 to 1844, presented as a lecture at the London Mathematical Society, he argues for life on all the planets and their satellites. Adam Walker, 1762 to 1841. Notice this is smack dab covering the era of Joseph Smith's life when all of this was being published and he thousands of publications. It was absolutely available and completely in the air and everybody was excited about this subject. And this is what Joseph Smith picked up. He was a scientific author and lecturer who shared Mitchell's enthusiasm for extraterrestrials. He suggested in his planet a familiar philosophy that the Martian atmosphere may prolong sunlight. After describing how Saturnians see the rings around their planet, Walker urges that their eyes and constitution are adapted to making Saturn as comfortable as abode as the worlds that receive more heat and light from the sun. Concerning stars, he states that they are suns and consequently destined to give light, heat, and vegetation to various worlds, which are infinitely too remote to be perceived by us. Anybody thinking of Moses in the Purgate Price, first chapter? Uh-huh. Yeah, baby. How much too vast for the human mind is this idea? Yeah, yeah. Let me keep reading. Wordsworth's enthusiasm for extraterrestrials had not abated by 1835. William Wordsworth, one of the most famous of all poets, was writing about this subject all the time. Lord Byron, 1788 to 1824, also employed the cosmic voyage theme. I'm on page 170 now in this uh, book. Pluralism is especially prominent in the writings of Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1792 to 1822. Shelley's Prometheus Unbound in 1820 says, Then see those million worlds which burn and roll around us. Their inhabitants beheld my sphered light wane in wide heaven. Andrew Fuller, 1754 to 1815, he urges that pluralism is at most probable that it can be reconciled with both Christianity and Scripture, that if pluralism is correct, then the Christian doctrine of redemption is strengthened and aggrandized by it, that possibly only men and angels have apostatized, and that even if extraterrestrials sinned, Christ's incarnation and redemption on the earth are competent to fill all and every part of God's dominion with everlasting and increasing joy. If that doesn't sound like Joseph Smith, what does? Yeah, I'm not done. 
hang on, Reverend Edward Nares, 1762 to 1841, says, man is but a speck in the universe, and God is infinite, and moreover is the maker of myriads and myriads of such worlds as this, and perhaps of myriads and myriads of different and distinct races of intelligent beings. Although this earth may not be the unique abode of life, Nares asserts that it is the only it is the only planet which God became incarnate and performed redemption redemptive action, the one great manifestation to accomplish the redemption of all flesh. Can you say Book of Mormon people? The effects of Christ's redemptive efforts on this earth, however, are spread in some way inscrutable to us, to every rational creature throughout the mighty firmament. The universal atonement, Second Nephi, Furthermore, Nares suggests that Nehemiah 9.6 might literally be translated from the Greek as, Thou, even thou art God alone, thou hast made the worlds, the universe of worlds, with all their inhabitants, the earth, with all things that are therein, and thou fillest the whole with life, and the inhabitants of the worlds worship thee. Does that sound like familiar Mormon doctrine from Joseph Smith? Furthermore, on page 176 now, and again, Adam Clark, 1762 to 1832, Vogel touches on Clark, which I will get to, but I wanted to get to it in the uh, extraterrestrial life debate as well. Clark's commentary, even before reaching Genesis 1-2, find an elaborate table of data on the planets and satellites, and by Genesis 1.16, we are informed Dr. Herschel's discoveries by means of his immensely magnifying telescopes have, by the general consent of philosophers, added a new habitable world to our system, which is the sun. After elaborating on this, he comments concerning the moon. There is scarcely any doubt remaining in the philosophical world that the moon is a habitable globe. Moreover, analogy implies that all the planets and their satellites are inhabited, for matter seems only to exist for the sake of intelligent beings, the stars, he explains, are suns, each having an appropriate number of planets moving around it. Consequently, there are innumerable worlds. He expands on this point in his commentary. Every star is a sun with its peculiar and attendant worlds. Thus, there may be systems of systems in endless gradation up to the throne of God. That's a serious key to Joseph Smith's cosmology 
as Dan Vogel shows, which I will get to. I just wanted to let you know that when I read this from Dan Vogel, there could be some apologists who say, oh, Vogel's just misinterpreting or pulling stuff out of thin air. No, he is not. Dan Vogel's scholarship shows it is not apologetic because he goes to the evidence. I found more evidence for Dan Vogel in an entire different source that I do not believe he used. He could have, but he didn't. And so I get the good pleasure of using it, which helps confirm Vogel's view of where Joseph Smith's cosmological ideas came from. This is critical. Reverend Timothy Dwight, 1752 to 1817. I'm on page 175 now. He says, The countless multitude of worlds, with all their various furniture, with his own hand, he lighted up at once innumerable suns and rolled around them innumerable worlds. All these he stored and adorned with a rich and unceasing variety of beauty and magnificence, and with the most suitable means of virtue and happiness. Throughout his vast empire, he surrounded his throne with intelligent creatures to fill the immense and perfect scheme of being. In the next sermon, Turning to the omnipresence and omniscience of God, Dwight stresses the power of a God who can comprehend a universe inhabited by beings emphatically surpassing number. Book of Moses, anyone? This is very interesting. Page 176 now. The omnipotence of God, Dwight remarks in his seventh sermon, drawing on the Heschelian telescope, which shows that every star is no other than a sun, a world of light, surrounded by its own attendant planets, formed into a system similar to ours. That is very important for Joseph Smith's cosmology. Superior intelligences are even more deeply moved because they see the planets as inhabited in all probability by endless multitude of beings, rational and immortal. Concerning the moon, Dwight declares, it is most rationally concluded that intelligent beings in great multitudes inhabit her lucid regions, beings probably far better, better and happier than ourselves. After asking why God made the stars, he responds that they formed to give light and motion and life and comfort to systems of worlds, which are the residents of intelligent beings of incalculable numbers. On page 177, Dwight urges that in such phrases, heavens means but a portion of the universe. This interpretation leads him to declare 
other intelligent beings, therefore, and the worlds which they inhabit, may be concerned in this wonderful production only in immediate and remoter sense, then comes the crucial passage. This world was created to become the scene of one great system of dispensations toward the race of Adam. It was intended also to be a theater of a mysterious and wonderful scheme of providence. The first rebellion in the divine kingdom commenced in heaven. The second existed here. The first was perpetrated by the highest, the second by the lowest, order of the intelligent creatures. Book of Abraham, anyone? Chapter 3. Yeah? Are you getting all this? Book of Moses, his cosmology. It was definitely being talked about, argued about, discussed, and philosophized by lots of people for decades, mind you. Yes. Dwight's sermon at Yale were very influential. In some years, as many as one-third of the students at Yale went into the ministry because of his talking about the plurality of worlds and the inhabitants. One-third of the students. That is astonishing, you guys. Wow. No doubt, as these men ascended their own pulpits, many of them preached a theology that incorporated the pluralist position. In other words, this isn't in a vacuum, you know. I'm on page 178 now. Jacques Necker. 1732 to 1804, the Swiss finance minister of Louis XVI in 1800, in one of his published books, which reveals an author devoted to natural theology, the great chain of being and the doctrine of plurality of worlds, the first discourse of the existence of a supreme being stresses God's power and God's goodness in maintaining a universe composed of innumerable suns which serve to illuminate planetary spheres, to direct their rotation, and to illuminate everywhere animate beings. I mean, this is facsimile to language, you guys, right? I mean, wow, <laughs> sensitive beings, and perhaps more wise, more grateful than we are. Necker goes on to urge, citing Lambert as his source, the probable existence of 500 million terrestrial masses traversing in an ecliptic orbit the vast extent of our solar system. And he even said the comets are habitated. Now, there was a big argument about that, too. He shows us in the relation in this immense space to the multiplication of beings with this end so superb and so generous. That's pretty amazing. I'm on page 179 now. And he says, Oswald, from his father's manuscript Reflections on Death, says, Oh, innumerable worlds, 
which to our eyes fill the infinity of space, unknown communities of creatures of God, communities of his children, scattered in the firmament and arrayed under his vaults. Let our praises join to yours. Families of people. Now he's talking about the inhabitants scattered across the universe. He calls them families of peoples, families of nations, assemblages of worlds. You speak with us. Glory to the master of them all, to the king of nature, to the God of the universe. This point is illustrated even more effectively from the writings of Jacques-Henri Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, 1737 to 1814. Harmonies de la nature, I can't pronounce French. I'm trying to make it sound like I can, but I can't. This was which after its 1815 publication, available to Joseph Smith or people around him, in both French and English, attained widespread popularity. The ninth and final book of Harmonies that devoted to astronomy contains an enthusiastic endorsement based on analogy and teleology of life, not only on all the planets, but also on the sun, the moon, and the comets. His suggestion that the sun should be the receptacle of the Earth's inhabitants in a future stage of existence was made in all seriousness. Anyone say Brigham Young? Did I hear Brigham Young's name spoken? You bet I did. Party P. Pratt? Absolutely. Orson Pratt? You betcha. Joseph Smith didn't quite go that detail, but he had it in the air. I'm on page 180 now. Louis Cousin Desperot. I, I have no idea if that's pronounced right. 1743 to 1818, proclaiming that all these worlds are populated by an infinite multitude, an infinite variety of sentient, intelligent beings who make the name of omnipotence resound in all the spheres. Probably the most prominent French literary figure of the early 19th century was Vicomte Francois René de Chateaubriand, 1768 to 1848. Christ is described as traveling through the universe from globe to globe, from sun to sun. His majestic steps had traversed all those spheres which the divine intelligences inhabit, the divine intelligences inhabit. This is book of Abraham language. This is book of Moses language. This is facsimile number two language. And perhaps men unknown to men. Chateaubriand's use of the word perhaps indicates that he held on other worlds as possible, that he viewed it as no more than this is suggested by his speculations that God created other worlds as future habitations for the race of Adam. Well, there you go. <laughs> but because men sinned, those worlds have remained only sparkling solitudes. 
Joseph de Maestre, 1754 to 1821. I'm on page 181 now in this book. Do not miserably belittle the infinite beings by setting ridiculous limits to God's power and to his love. What is more certain that the proposition, everything has been made by and for intelligence? Does that language ring a bell? Absolutely. What else can a planetary system be than a system of intelligences? Well, that's Joseph Smith language in the book of Abraham, isn't it? And each planet, then the abode of these families. Go down, for there is space there to create a world, right? Where have you heard that before, some of us? Thomas Chalmers, oh my glory. Thomas Chalmers, on the other side of the ocean, was the singular most popular evangelical principle all over Europe, and he sold tens of thousands of copies through the course of nine editions in the first year of his publication, and his stuff immediately came over to America and was absolutely read by everybody who was anybody. Crow makes a big deal about the incredible, bam, overnight sensation of Chalmers' materials. Published in January 28, 1817, Chalmers' Astronomical Discourses sold 6,000 copies in the first 10 weeks, and by year's end, 20,000 copies in nine different editions. And it continued being a bestseller throughout the entire course of his life. And he wrote this when he was relatively young. Chalmers' astronomical discourses to this day command a larger sale than any other portion of Chalmers' writings, published in America already in 1817. He describes the heavens not as seen by the ancient psalmists, but as beheld by modern astronomers, just like Joseph Smith did, and incorporated it into the book of Abraham and Paximly number two. However, as Vogel has so strikingly demonstrated, Joseph Smith took his knowledge from the Egyptian grammar that he translated from the hieroglyphs off of the papyri. And I'll show you the visual of that here in a few minutes. So, such instruments as the modern telescopes have revealed planets that dwarf the Earth and that, like the Earth, possess seasons and satellites. Stars in startling number have been sighted and shown to be suns that may surpass our luminary in brilliance and rival it in richness of planetary retinue. This is Book of Abraham facsimile number two language, right? Moreover, these planets must be the mansions of life, of intelligence, 
nebula of immense proportions also glow within the heavens of the moderns. Even were the earth and all the celestial orbs visible to us to disappear, yet there are other worlds which roll afar. The light of other suns shines upon them. I'm on page 187 now. For anything I know, the every planet that rolls in the immensity around me may be a land of righteousness. This leads us to the awesome thought that the universe may be one secure and rejoicing family, wherein our alienated world is the only strayed or only captive member. Intriguing language, is it not? Yeah. He later used this idea to explain why on the salvation of our solitary species so much attention appears to have been concentrated. After reading passages such as these, one suspects that the burghers of Glasgow return to their work with an elevated sense of the significance of their every action exactly the same influence Joseph Smith's cosmological discourses had on his congregations, right? Page 189 now. Chalmers' sermons may be seen as a brilliant attempt to transform a doctrine of rationalistic natural theology into a heart-moving and soul-saving vision of a bountifully generous God so deeply concerned about each of us as persons that he lent his Son for our salvation. I mean, that's Joseph Smith's language and concept all the way in the scriptures, isn't it? And in his sermons. Well, this was what was being bandied about on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean for decades all throughout Joseph Smith's life and past. I'm on page 191 here. Another prominent Baptist divine, John Foster, from 1770 to 1843. We think that, excepting to minds repugnant to magnificent ideas, the probability that the other orbs of our system are inhabited worlds must appear so great that a great direct revelation from heaven declaring the fact would make but very little difference in our assurance of it. There's the clue to Joseph Smith, right? Well, I think I will make it like a revelation anyway. And he did, right? Very interesting. Because now, now various people reviewed this guy's book, uh, John Foster's books and, and articles, and they were arguing back and forth, of course, of course, some pro, some con. One of the reviewers, and he weakly questions the plurality doctrine, it's not surprising that none of them expresses any hesitancy at Chalmers' attempts to associate plurality of worlds with Christianity. Indeed, Foster's view 
is that Chalmers was not so much attempting to refute the infidel as to co-extend the truths and feelings of revealed religion, Joseph Smith, folks, with the demonstrations and speculations of astronomy. That's what he did in the book of Abraham, facsimile number two, and in the book of Abraham, chapter three, and in the grammar and alphabet that he got from the papyri. All of it from the roll that was the book of Abraham, which we have shown and we'll show it again. Very interesting here. Well, Foster does, however, express reservations concerning some of the ways in which Chalmers interweaves pluralism and Christianity, especially in his fourth, fifth, and sixth discourses. He questions the legitimacy of Chalmers' suggestion that Christ's redemptive actions and the other religions' developments of our planet are known on other planets. See, that's been the speculation in Joseph Smith's era, however, and Joseph Smith discussed it as well as some of his other church leaders, right? It's in the air. So in a statement that seems to suggest the view that Christ became incarnate on other planets— Foster urges that extraterrestrials have religious events of comparable significance to any on this planet, making it unlikely that events of our planet would be noteworthy on other orbs. Foster also suggests that the pluralist doctrine helps explain the problem of evil on this planet by making it possible to claim that the amount of sin and misery on this planet is atypical of the rest of God's creation. And in the Book of Mormon, uh, is it in the Book of Mormon, RFM? Radio Free Mormon, you're here. Uh, or is it in the DNC? This world is the only world that was so wicked they would crucify Christ. That's why he had to come here. Even that was being speculated about in the air in Joseph Smith's time. Fascinating, isn't it? I'm on page 192 here. John, former periodical, describes Chalmers' book as possessing an air of philosophical grandeur and truth and as written with an enthusiasm and an eloquence to which we scarcely know where to find any parallel. Wilson's views are shared in the later Blackwood's article, where it even suggested that Chalmers' discourses reads like an inspired book. Even stronger praises appear in the British Review now of Chalmers, perhaps in sparkling vigor of expression, opulence and control of diction, and a profound feeling of his subject, scarcely any writer, ancient or modern, can stand a comparison with the author of these discourses. A middle position is taken in the Eclectic Review, where Foster states, 
no readers can be more sensible to its glow and richness of coloring, but there is no denying that it is guilty of a rhetorical march, a sonorous pomp, a shoey sameness, a want, therefore, of simplicity and flexibility. Well, when the reader has taken time to peruse this Farrago, he will perhaps no longer wonder that the preacher in his late visit to our metropolis excited a burst of admiration and occupied as much of the eager buzz as if a new missionary of the gospel had actually arrived from the moon to bring us news of other worlds and to strike infidelity dumb. Well, that would have been irresistible to Joseph Smith, wouldn't it? He would have wanted to get on that kind of bandwagon, and he did. And the effect was the same with his early Mormon followers. Very remarkable here. Reverend Thomas Dick, oh boy, 1774 to 1857. His warmest reception came from the United States where one writer stated that no author of the 19th century has a higher claim upon the respect and gratitude of the world than the Christian philosopher Dr. Thomas Dick, and Union College in New York bestowed upon him an honorary doctorate. What makes Dick significant in this history is that nearly all of his books were laced with ideas of extraterrestrial life. He wrote five main texts. Pluralist passages abound in the Christian philosopher. The connection of science and philosophy with religion. For example, in praising the wisdom of the deity for creating the sun of such just such a size and at just such a distance as to refresh and cheer us and to enliven our soil, Dick adds that this does not preclude the atmosphere and physical constitutions of the other planets from being equally beneficial to their inhabitants, some of whom may have no need of sleep. To assert that every star is the center of a system of planetary worlds where the agency of God may be endlessly varied and perhaps more strikingly displayed than even in the system to which this to which we belong this is book of abraham cosmology ideas here in the 19th century as dan vogel shows this is not ancient cosmology this is the same stuff in our book of abraham fascinating vogel goes into exquisite detail i won't be able to tonight uh, but i'll get to some of it God has placed within the sun a number of worlds and peopled them with intelligent beings. Moreover, I'm on page 197 now, he predicts that direct proofs of the moon's habitability will be forthcoming. Mormons predicted it was Quaker-like people. <laughs> but you see, it was in the air. This is key to understanding facsimile number two, you guys. Although populating all the planets, Dick hesitates concerning comets. Okay, so that's good. It takes him only until the second paragraph of his 
philosophy of religion text to remind his readers, we have the strongest reason to believe that the distant regions of the material world are also replenished with intellectual beings in which there may be a graduation upwards in the scale of intellect above that of man as diversified as that which we perceive in the descending scale from man downward to the animalcula, the graded of intelligences in the premortal existence. Joseph Smith put it in the premortal existence. Well, and in the Doctrine and Covenants, he put it in this existence. See, it was very much in the air. That's the point. This is the cosmology Joseph Smith inherited and wanted us to think was in Abraham's day when he was just taking it from his own. This is remarkable. The grand principles of morality now are not to be viewed as confined merely to the inhabitants of our globe, but extend to all intelligent beings throughout the vast universe. He goes on to state that there is but one religion throughout the universe. And again, I'm on page 198. His philosophy of a future state, which he dedicated to Chalmers, for example, Dick calculates that because we can see 80 million stars and because each star has at least 30 satellites encircling it, 2 trillion, no, 2 billion, 400 million yeah, 2 billion, 400 million inhabited worlds must exist within the visible universe. At one point, he speculates that celestial messengers, this is a direct interpretation of one of the hieroglyphs off the papyri. The celestial messengers will convey to us information on these worlds. I mean, wow. <laughs> Joseph Smith is, whoo, that's like he's quoting Joseph Smith before Joseph Smith was born, man. He draws on the highly probable, if not certain, idea of some astronomers that a massive body, that a massive body is located at the center of the universe to suggest that this body may be the throne of God, and that's in the text of the book of Abraham. And I do believe this is one point that Bogle also makes. Joseph Smith is claiming he got it off the ancient Egyptian papyri, right? Here he adds, deputations from all the principal provenances of creation may occasionally assemble. Pay attention and think of the pre-existence council of the gods in Abraham 3 here. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'll start over. The principal provenances of creation may occasionally assemble and inhabitants of different worlds mingle with each other and learn the grand outlines of those physical operations and moral transactions. In other words, they hear the plan of God in the premortal existence, Abraham 3, which have taken place in their respective spheres. Dick's readiness to reduce the spiritual to the material extends even to the suggestion that probably 
angels are material beings. Again, Joseph Smith's cosmology <laughs> and Thomas Dick's philosophy. <laughs> there is no such thing as immaterial matter. Spirit is just refined matter. So again, on page 198, Dick does break new ground in assigning specific numbers for the populations of the planets and planetoids and even for the edges of the rings of Saturn. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? Basing his calculations on the population density of England being 280 persons per square mile and neglecting the possibility of oceans elsewhere, Dick constructs a table in which he assigns every planet and planetoid in the solar system except Vesta a higher population than the Earth. It would be presumptuous in man, he says, to affirm that the Creator has not placed innumerable orders of sentient and intelligent beings throughout the expansive regions of the sun. He all but carries out the calculation by noting that the surface area of the sun is 31 times the combined surface areas of all of the other solar system objects. And there is his, there is his table. And you can see he has hundreds of millions of inhabitants in the solar system. You can pause the video when you watch it and read that. That is amazing. And then having, I'm still on page 199 now, having discussed pluralistic ideas in nearly every section of his book, Dick devotes his last chapter to the five arguments. There's five arguments for the plurality of the worlds. I think Dick was channeling Joseph Smith here. Let's take a look. Okay, one, there are bodies in the planetary system of such magnitudes as to afford ample scope for the abodes of myriads of inhabitants. Two, there is a general similarity among all the bodies of the planetary system, which tends to prove that they are intended to subserve the same ultimate designs in the arrangements of the Creator. Three, in the bodies which constitute the solar system, there are special arrangements which indicate their adaptation to the enjoyments of sensitive and intelligent beings, and which prove that this was the ultimate design of their creation. Four, the scenery of the heavens, as viewed from the surfaces of the larger planets and their satellites, forms a presumptive proof that both the planets and their moons are inhabited by intellectual beings. Five, in the world we inhabit, every part of nature is destined to the support of animated beings. 
Now, Dick was sufficiently informed astronomically to know that serious objections could be brought against these arguments. For example, he knew that some astronomers objected to populating particular celestial bodies because no evidence of atmosphere on them could be found. This objection Dick dispatches by proposing that their atmospheres are invisible and purer than ours. And from this, he concludes, the moral and physical condition of their inhabitants is probably superior to that enjoyed upon the earth. We ought to view the approach of a comet not as a harbinger of evil, he says in another publication, but as a splendid world. He changed his view later on about comets later on in life. We should view a comet as a splendid world conveying millions of happy beings to survey a new region of the divine empire. On page 201 now, oh, the likely population of the visible universe, I don't even know how to pronounce this number. There it is right on top in orange. It's... Uh, 60,573 followed by 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18 zeros. <laughs> In other words, a lot. So still on page 201. Turning to the question of whether we may ever enjoy an intimate correspondence with beings belonging to other worlds, he suggests that although this is not now possible, man is destined to a future and eternal state of existence where the range of his faculties and his connections with other beings will be indefinitely expanded. In his section on Nova, Dick discusses the views of Samuel Vince, 1749-1821. The Plumian professor of astronomy at Cambridge, who in his complete system of astronomy text had urged that the disappearance of a star may be the destruction of that system at the time appointed by the deity for the probation of its inhabitants. Very interesting speculations, isn't it? I'm on page 202 now. The fact of Dick's far-reaching influence, persons as prominent as Ralph Waldo Emerson, as William Lloyd Garrison, as Harriet Beecher Stowe, came to Dundee to meet Dick. And Emily Bronte seems to have borrowed from his sidereal heavens to enrich her poetry. Furthermore, E.E. E. Barnard and J.A. Brashear testified to the role of Dick's writings in leading them into astronomical careers in which they excelled and distinguished themselves. And Dr. David Livingstone revealed in 1857 that it was Dick's philosophy of a future state that inspired him to missionary work. There you go. The effect was the exact same on the early Mormons when Joseph Smith was presenting just all of these ideas into his revelations 
and translations from heaven and the papyri, putting them into the book of Abraham. Not a few authors endeavored to save the moon people. They called them Selenites, as they supposed, as the supposed inhabitants of our satellite were called the Selenites. Both Dwight and Dick endorsed people living on the moon. Such prominent astronomers as Grothusen, Gauss, yeah, Carl Friedrich Gauss, the mathematician astronomer. Littrow, Bessel, and Medler, who discussed the question of lunar life, as well as New York journalist R.A. Locke, who in 1835 created a sensation by publishing a report that rational beings had been sighted on the moon. <laughs> to Mormons, they looked like Quakers. <laughs> right? But that idea was in the air, as all of these ideas on astronomy were. Page 203 now. Gruthusen published a number of subsequent discussions of lunar life. He would no doubt rank as most important a lengthy paper used in 1824 now under the title, Discovery of Many Distinct Traces of Lunar Inhabitants, Especially of One of Their Colossal Buildings. And they, they ran and raved and argued about this through the newspapers and through the publications of the time, for real. And he goes on page after page after page discussing this. On page... 207. In the last year of his life, Carl Friedrich Gauss once again became involved with pluralism. William Wool sent copies of his 1853 anti-pluralist book to Gauss and to Alexander von Humboldt, another world-famous scientist. On March 4th, 1854. Now, this is post-Joseph Smith. The reason I'm reading this is I'm going to show you that this subject was as prominent and discussed and argued about both before Joseph Smith, during Joseph Smith, and well after Joseph Smith. This is not just an anomaly for two weeks that Joseph Smith luckily found out. This was the reason the fervency of the preaching in New York occurred that caused it to become the burned over district because of this subject, the plurality of worlds. And Joseph Smith is right in the thick of this thing, man. So he had claimed in his book that only the earth can be inhabited because all intelligent beings are by their nature sinful and the redemption, the crucifixion, happy Easter. Boy, this discourse is happening to be an Easter message after all, isn't it? Isn't that fun? That's cool. The crucifixion, the redemption, cannot be repeated on the many millions of nebula observed by Ross. 
Well, Giles responded on the 5th of May, 1854, urging that the idea that life is limited to the earth could not be maintained, even by a person who strongly believes in the literal truth of the Christian dogmas. Gauss also faults Wuhl, and with him Bessel, whom Wuhl had cited in support of his anti-pluralist position for their rejection of lunar life. Gauss said, it would be very precipitous to deny, without elaborate argumentation, all inhabitants to the moon. Nature has more means than a poor man may divine. Gauss had adopted the doctrine that after death, our souls take on new material forms on other cosmic bodies, including even the sun. <sighs> Take a deep breath, man. Baron Wolfgang Sartorius von Walterhausen, an intimate friend of Gauss, revealed about Gauss that he held order and conscious life on the sun and the planets to be very probable and occasionally called attention to the action of gravity on the surface of heavenly bodies as bearing preeminently on this very question. Considering the universal nature of matter, there could exist on the sun with its 28-fold greater gravity, only very tiny creatures, whereas our bodies would be crushed. So the evidence is, in short, very strong that Gauss and Gruthusen and Littro and Obers of Obers' paradox fame, he was also in this discussion. Why is the night sky black, the Obers' paradox, a famous astronomical uh, concept? They all accepted life on the moon and elsewhere in the universe, even while differing markedly in readiness to make their convictions public. So what the reason, see, oh man, I've taken, well, that's my discourse tonight, pretty much. It's okay, because what I want to do is I want to establish something very firmly here. Uh, I have seen Ah, apologetic attempts that say that anybody who will disagree with the Mormon apologists or who will give a, a different interpretation, whether it's scientific, scriptural, uh, historic, philosophic, from the church leaders, etc., they're just kind of pulling air out of the wind. They're, they're lying. They are just inventing evidence, etc. When Dan Vogel establishes the context in chapter 5 in his book on the basis of Joseph Smith's astronomy, in fact, simile number 2, and in the Egyptian grammar, he is pulling it with the evidence of the background that the universe has inhabitable planets, and there is intelligent life in the universe. This is the background of Joseph Smith's cosmology. 
He only mentioned a couple of items because, of course, Vogel is laser-focused. I'm not criticizing Dan Vogel for doing it this way. I'm saying his laser focus was going to be on the papyri and the evidence of Joseph's translation and his exploration of that, right? So Vogel did very excellent in bringing at least to our attention I presented vastly more evidence showing that Vogel is not just out there whistling Dixie. That was my intent tonight to show because this affects so many other revelations, so many other Joseph Smith sermons, so many other translations and philosophical concepts with which Definitely. I mean, you can read all about this in the Journal of Discourses, man. The Pratt brothers, both Orson and Parley P. Pratt, picked up on this enormously. Brigham Young picked up on it. Heber C. Kimball, in kind of his dunderhead pioneer way, tried to discuss it. Orson Hyde. It's all over the place on this cosmology of the eternal worlds, the premortal existence of spirits as an analogy, one intelligence above another one, etc. All of this grand plan of God was in the air. And that's really important when it comes to getting to the papyri and the hieroglyphs. And that uh, I I've taken up enough of your time. It's Easter uh, night. Uh, I, I apologize. I did not get to the full subject of Vogel, um, and I will do so next week. I will continue this, and then the week after that, I will pick up Paul Osborne on his showing the apologetic efforts of supporting facsimile number three, figure six, is completely faulty. And in the meantime, if I can say, while there's a few of you here still, I have an announcement. I will be on the Mormon Stories podcast with John DeLynn and Gerardo on May 2nd. That's a Monday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. I'd love to see absolutely every one of you here over there. And in fact, I do have another announcement that Radio Free Mormon is also going to be on John DeLynn's show, Mormon Stories completing his second, it's going to be his second time on Tuesday, I believe April 26th. If I'm wrong, he'll correct us in the comments. So why don't I take just, you know, 15 minutes or so and chat at you. I want to save the rest of Vogel's materials for an actual formal presentation because how Vogel does this is so cool. And I want to take the time. I don't want to feel rushed. I've given you some fantastically excellent support for Vogel's opening idea as a background. And that's what I wanted to establish because it's so fantastically interesting. So anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, and, and I also want to read off some of the definitions in the facsimiles and all that. So for the next 10 minutes or so, let's just say happy Easter to each other. I'm basically done. Uh, yeah, it looks like you guys are already talking about the books of Moses and the books of it. Good, because that's what I wanted you to get. I wanted you to get the idea that even Joe, oh, thank you, fine business operator. Yeah, baby. You are wonderful. Thank you. That's a very kind donation. If any of, of the other of you have donated and I missed it, 
I apologize. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That means a lot to us who put a lot of effort and time into these wonderful uh, informative books that we get to read and share with you. And we love doing this. So that's very nice. Well, thank you, Dan. Um, I will complete your chapter, but yeah. Yeah. You really got me. You really got me hopping when you actually showed that, that uh, this was the basis, uh, you know, astronomically, philosophically, if you want to approach it that way, for Joseph Smith's astronomy. In fact, it's my number two, because I've often thought through the years, you know, where did he get his astronomical stuff, his astronomical stuff? And when you gave the idea, and I think he showed enough evidence to at least generate the conclusion, but I wanted to show how vastly wide and deep and all-inclusive that kind of a background was. It saturated Joseph Smith's life. And I know you're well aware of that. And, and so I just wanted to emphasize that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun to see this. Uh, and again, I'll encourage all of you, if you can, read, read Vogel's book, man. It's the best thing in print so far. Oh, thank you, Radio Free Mormon. That's very kind of you. You're very generous, my friend. When we get together, I'm going to buy you a steak, dude. Steak and beer. Yeah, baby. Hey, other sheep. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Just off work. We'll rewind tonight. Yeah, happy Easter. Yeah, I'm just finishing up. Um, I got the absolute beautiful background context that Vogel described I emphasized that and added the evidence to his claim, which is fundamentally spot on. And I just want to keep that clear in case there's others who will say, well, no, Vogel's miscontexting this, or Vogel is a critic, always takes things out of context and all that. Uh-uh. Nope. I'm not going to let crap like that fly anymore. There's no way he's doing that. That's just Anna Mormon Antis. Yes, the 15 moving. Yes, absolutely, Dan. The 15 moving and fixed stars reflecting the higher. Yes, I will get into all that detail next week. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I want to stop right now, because that kind of detail in your text is really cool. That was the eye-opening stuff. I won't forget that. Thanks for the reminder. And then, uh, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after next. I know it seems like I keep putting off Paul Osborne. I'm not trying to, Paul but I will tackle uh, Paul Osborne's excellent information on one of the figures on facsimile number three. He's got some fantastic materials. I mean, I don't know of anyone in print or on the net right now who knows facsimile number three and all the basic Egyptological background to facsimile number three than Paul Osborne does. I mean, he even rivals Robert Rittner, and that almost sounds blasphemous, but I'm not even joking. Uh, Paul Osborne is a jewel man, so I am looking very forward to sharing his information in two weeks from tonight. So, oh, and Goaty McGoatface, good to see you here. Yeah, and John Snedker, good to see you here. Welcome, Mike Weiss, good to see you here, my friend. Yeah. And blessed patty cake. Oh, Doug Lyman, good to see you too. Well, yeah, we're glad you showed. Oh, William Graves, thank you. Anyway, William Graves, yeah. 
Teresa Pittman. Oh, thank you, Teresa. That's very kind of you to say, and I'm really glad you could show up. So this is good. We'll just, we're going to just keep right on buzzing along. We're going to keep right on learning and increasing our knowledge and our ability to see where information comes from. Dan Vogel has added tremendous clarity with which I really appreciate. I am trying to add greater clarity as well. I'm I'm actually sharing where I get my clarity from and I'm finding ways to visually sharpen the clarity. I have some great visuals from Vogel's chapter that he did not put in his book. I came up with them. I'm looking very forward to showing you guys those next week. I promise you'll love these. Oh, I was so excited. I couldn't hardly sleep last night. So anyway, excellent stuff. Very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, Mike Weiss, the moon Quakers live on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, that, that speculation is not offhanded. Uh, because that is how the pluralists maintained their view as telescopes got stronger, according to Crow in his book that I was elaborating on. When the astronomers and scientists finally said, look, really, seriously, our telescopes are powerful enough that we do not see anybody on the moon, the argument was, well, we're looking on the wrong side. They come around every now and then and we've seen them, and then they go live on the dark side. I'm serious. In other words, the problem, as Crow shows in his summation of the entire 200-year debate, the problem with the plurality of worlds is that it is unfalsifiable, right? <laughs> That's why they could keep the idea alive for centuries. Very interesting how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Looks like you guys had a good time. I'm really glad. I love it when you guys have a good time. Well, that's true, Dan, but oh, talk about fussy. <laughs> Dan Vogel giving us more technical details. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, thank you, Tom Miller. That is my goal. We want clarity. And that's what I'm getting from Dan Vogel and Radio Free Mormon and Bill Reel and uh, Brent Metcalf and Paul Osborne and uh, all the people on Shade's message board who discuss the papyri and the translation and all that. Uh, it's really nice. That's what makes Paul Osborne's Delmarva Peninsula Theory, a book of Mormon geography, so amazing. And I will be getting on to that eventually, too. I have not forgot you, Paul, my brother. Uh-uh. No, we will be bringing up Book of Mormon geography again. And I'm going to be using Paul Osborne's material. Very interesting stuff. Well worth knowing. And uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, Osborne brings clarity. And that's what makes all this stuff so exciting. Yeah, I love it, man. Yeah, for real. Stay tuned. We have boatloads, and I mean hundreds of more podcasts between Mormonism Live and between my live. And I mean, now, you guys need to check Mormon Discussions, Inc. 
on the main page because there's several other podcasts. Uh, Nemo has his podcasts. Rammy Umptum Ruminations. Scott runs that site. He's been having some good stuff, man. He's he's been analyzing with someone else. Bon Brody's book, No Man Knows My History. And that's a good little series. So there's a lot of podcasts. The I can't remember the name of the analytic mind or something like that. Uh, Radio Free Mormon will will uh, straighten me out. But yeah, there's some good stuff. Mormon Discussions Inc. is growing, producing more podcasts on social issues, on scripture studies. Bill Real just mentioned again in his annual review about what we're doing, his historic Jesus podcasts, stuff like that. Radio Free Mormon just yesterday published another podcast, excellent podcast, on Jesus and Easter and the astronomical full moon concept with Passover and all that. I mean... We've got a lot of stuff kicking out. We've got a lot of talented people. So there's no loss of fabulous materials to learn for the next, I'll say, 200 years if we all live that long. So I I agree with what Dan Vogel just said. Absolutely, It's fun to shake off the apologists and start studying the book of Abraham from the 19th century view. It is actually, and I, I 10 years ago, if you had told me I, I would say this publicly, I would have laughed you off the stage, but it actually is more refreshing to read Joseph Smith from his environmental setting. It, it's much more realistic, incredible, but it's actually, and I know you, some won't believe me, and that's all good. Doesn't matter. It's okay. We can all disagree and remain best friends because that's what we're going to do anyway. But it's actually more enlightening. It's more exciting. Yeah, that 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 is so interesting how that works. So hit the like button, you all. Oh, that's Mike Weiss saying that. Yeah, yeah. Hit the like button a few times. I I hope you guys enjoy these. I. Uh, I want to give you the best information and I want to do it in such a way that I won't put you to sleep. So I hope that works out. I, I appreciate you keeping coming back. I mean, it makes me want to study harder so that I can give you good quality crap or I mean, uh, stuff. <laughs> yes. Kicking it with Carrie. Absolutely fine. Business operator. You betcha. Yeah. The diversity. Yeah. Mike. Uh, or I mean, other sheep. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying. Yeah, the Mormon Discussions, Inc. diversity has really almost exploded just within the last six months. It's really spectacular. I mean, since I jumped on, I'm what I'm, I've been with them now, associated with them almost nine months. And, and I'm just really impressed with our growth uh, in just nine months. I mean, Bill and RFM have added, I mean, what, <laughs> nine other podcasts. It's pretty impressive. Really good stuff, man. So there's a little bit for everybody. That's what I love about it. Yeah, no kidding. So. Uh, Mike Langley, good question. Does Amazon sell the once and future state? 
I'm not sure it is an older book. And if it did, it might be somewhat pricey, but you can check and see. I don't have it. I have the summation, the, the philosophical discussion of it in this extraterrestrial life debate book by Mike Crow. This is the one I was reading from tonight. I don't actually have Thomas Dick's book, but I'll bet some of the big college libraries do, I would think. But yeah, I would check Amazon too, sure. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh, it wasn't on Amazon. Dadgummit. Uh, maybe some of the university libraries. I wonder if there's some uh, online, uh, might be considered a rare book, in which case you might be spending a lot of money for that. I'm not sure. Good question. Uh, I, I haven't honestly looked, but I honestly will. Um, yeah, that'd be actually fun to have uh, because, I mean, just, and really seriously, I mean, let's be realistic. Uh, Adam Clark, his Bible commentary, there's no question that uh, that influential book was used by the early Mormons and Joseph Smith, and so was some of the other several famous people who were in the thick of things, in the heat of debate. Of course, Joseph Smith's not going to be ignorant of that. He was sending missionaries out all the time, and then they were coming back and constantly having council meetings. I mean, the history of the church is almost one long, great, big, seven-book bore fest of descriptions of, I was in council with the brethren today from 2 p.m. till 10, discussing church business. But there was a whole lot more than that being discussed, you know. That's where their knowledge was coming from, and they were able to upgrade everybody and all that. So it's really important to get that. Fun stuff to study without question. Set patty cake. Excellent point, dear. Thank you. Uh, someone asked Sandra Tanner and come back and tell us if she has Dick's uh, book. That That is a great suggestion. She was an avid collector of stuff like that. I wouldn't have thought of that. Thanks, Patty Cake. Great suggestion. Yep. The Philosophy of a Future State by Thomas Dick is on Amazon. Same book. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That is it. So it is on, Mike Weiss says it is on Amazon. Yeah, that's the one. How much is it, Mike? I'd like to know. That would be interesting to see. I'll check into it and see. Remember, he wrote five different books. 12 bucks? Crap, man, I'm going to go order it. That's not bad. Well, it'd be fun because we could find out other stuff that uh, the thing that Crow found is in every single one of his books, the idea of the plurality of worlds uh, was brought into his subject in one way or another. Now, of course, he was he was like Chalmers in that respect that he was more of a he was trying to evangelize everybody. So we have to be. Uh, careful about that, but 
Yeah, he was very influential. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. So, uh, well, you guys, it is an hour and 40 minutes and, and it is Christmas evening. So, but there's still 40 of you here. Thank you so much for attending. Thank you for the likes. I appreciate the donations. I love every one of you guys, man. You're the best audience. I'm going to go ahead and head out. I appreciate your attendance. I'm glad we're all getting along as a family on the chat. I will see you this Wednesday. Mormonism live bill real. Yeah, baby. And Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, baby. Squared. And then next Sunday, the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides, where I will complete the chapter on cosmology and astronomy. In fact, my number two on Dan Vogel's book. And then the week after that, absolutely Paul Osborne. And then I do believe the week after that, I will, that Monday night, after my Sunday night with Paul Osborne, I do believe we can have Sunday night fireside with the backyard professor. Then we can have Monday family home evening with Mormon stories, you know, unless by then you're sick to death of me. You guys think you have it rough? I have to live with myself. <laughs> It's a good thing I'm an optimist and I'm always in a pleasant mood, though. Woohoo! That makes it easier for my life. I'm not kidding. So, anyway, yeah, happy Easter, all of the Easter. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Huff Daddy, good to see you here. Thank you for showing up. I didn't get to say hi to you. I'm glad you showed up. Appreciate all you guys. I'm going to sign off. I will see you guys Wednesday night. And then next Sunday. All right. You have a good rest of the Easter. Be safe. Do well. Have fun. Be good. Make lots of friends. Seriously, be nice. It's time. The world needs nice right now. So, all right. I'll see you in a few more days, you guys. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs>